On July 14th, 2017, Unfound covered the 2014 disappearance of Flight 370. Despite a total of over $200 million being spent by a combination of countries, the Boeing 777 is still missing. Today, due to Ed being at a week-long disc golf tournament, Unfound replays the original introduction and interview while adding new commentary at the end. I'm Ed Denzel, and this is Unfound. Stubbornness is a quirk of human nature. I wouldn't say it's the worst of what humans can dish out, but it certainly can drive us nuts. I'd say it's a trait that can sow the seeds of animosity and resentment over a long period of time, and there's nothing that can irk us more than someone who can't see things our own way, even though the truth is right in front of that other person's face. Of course, it's also a flaw of our own nature that we don't see that same hard-headedness in ourselves. In fact, I think all of us walk around thinking we're fairly open-minded, when probably we're not. We're just as likely to defend mistakes and wrong thinking as much as anyone else. So where am I going with this? Well, if this stubbornness you're running into in your life is with your mother-in-law, your boss, your neighbor, whoever, and may I say the problems they may have with your own hard-headedness, that's something that probably you're all just going to have to work out. But what if that stubbornness, closed-mindedness, obstinacy, mental myopia is what is keeping 239 people from being found? What then? Because in the disappearance of Flight 370, my own thoughts regarding this case have been challenged, and it's only been within the last six months that I've personally had to get past my own closed-mindedness and open my mind to other possibilities. And I hope after listening to this episode, you'll open your minds as well, because it seems the authorities and governments who continue to look for Flight 370 will not. And now, a summary of the disappearance. Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, registered as 9MMRO, was a scheduled international passenger flight that disappeared on March 8, 2014, while flying from Kuala Lumpur International Airport, Malaysia, to its destination, Beijing International Airport in China. The aircraft, a Boeing 777-200ER, last made voice contact with air traffic control at 1.19 a.m. Malaysia time when it was over the South China Sea, less than an hour after takeoff. The aircraft disappeared from air traffic controller's radar screens at 1.22 a.m., three minutes later. However, Flight 370 was still tracked on military radar as it deviated westward from its planned flight path and crossed back over the Malay Peninsula. It left the range of Malaysian military radar at 2.22 a.m. while over the Adaman Sea, 200 nautical miles northwest of Malaysia. The aircraft was carrying 12 Malaysian crew members and 227 passengers from 15 nations. The multinational search effort for the aircraft was the largest and most expensive in aviation history. 
The search began in the Gulf of Thailand and the South China Sea, where the aircraft's signal was last detected on secondary surveillance radar, but was soon extended to the Strait of Malacca and the Adaman Sea. Analysis of the satellite communications between the aircraft and Inmarsat's satellite network concluded that the flight continued until at least 8.19 a.m. Malaysia time, flying south into the southern Indian Ocean. Australia took charge of the search on March 17, 2014, when the search moved to the southern Indian Ocean. From October 2014 to January 2017, a comprehensive survey of 46,000 square miles yielded no evidence of the aircraft. But pieces of debris were found on the coast of Africa and on Indian Ocean islands off the coast of that continent, the first discovered on July 29, 2015, on Reunion Island. However, the bulk of the aircraft has still not been located on the sea floor. The interview for this episode is with Jeff Wise, aviation author and expert. Unfound news. Yes, I was at a disc golf tournament this entire week. It was the Professional Disc Golf Association Amateur World Championships in Orlando, Florida. I waited a long time to take part in them. And really, this is the first kind of vacation I've had in over 10 years. By the way... I did not play very well. Next, mark your calendars. Next Thursday, August 26th at 7 p.m. Eastern, it's that time for myself and Dr. Telesco to put on another show. Once again, it will play live on the Fischler College of Education and School of Criminal Justice YouTube channel. The topic... The Fundamentals of Understanding Missing Persons Cases. Finally, Season 2, Volume 3 of the Unfound Book Series is out. This means that every disappearance covered from September 2016 to the end of 2017 is now in a book. Within the last two days, I posted the cover for this new volume on all of Unfound's social media sites. I hope you saw it where you can find Unfound. Unfound supports accounts on Podomatic, iTunes, Spotify, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Deezer, and YouTube. Speaking of YouTube, on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern, please join us for the Unfound live show. All of you can talk with me, and I can answer your questions. Contribute to Unfound at patreon.com forward slash unfoundpodcast. You can also contribute to PayPal, paypal.me forward slash unfoundpodcast. I also need to give a huge shout out to all the people who have monetarily contributed using Super Chat during the live show on Wednesday nights. Thank you for watching and thank you for donating. The email address, unfoundpodcast at gmail.com. Merchandise, the books at amazon.com in both ebook and print form. Do not forget the reviews. Shirts at unfound-podcast.myshopify.com or you can track down my assistant Heather in the Facebook group. Playing cards at makeplayingcards.com forward slash sell forward slash unfoundpodcast. The website, theunfoundpodcast.com. And please mention Unfound at all true crime websites and forums.
Thank you. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm so happy to have on this episode of Unfound, Jeff Wise. Jeff, welcome to Unfound. Hey, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Jeff, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, how you got into aviation, and maybe some of your credentials. Okay, sure. Well, uh, I'm a journalist. Uh, I've been a freelance uh, writer for, boy, about 25 years now. And um, I got my pilot's license about, let's see, about 15 years ago. And so I had been writing about adventure and travel, uh, some science. Uh, But once I got my pilot's license, I got increasingly into writing about airplanes and flying. and, and, And that turned into, you know, one of the things about flying that people are most interested in is, of course, crashes and and you know the the more mysterious ones uh, seem to generate the most interest i wrote a lot about air france 447 which was the greatest mystery prior to the disappearance of malaysian airlines mh370 um and so then i wound up um you know written for popular mechanics new york magazine um, men's journal lots of other uh places as well um once mh370 disappeared i found myself going on cnn many times a day for about four months. You know, as you know, it was a case that pretty much obsessed uh, CNN and they kind of covered nothing else for a little while. Uh, so I got kind of sucked into that. And, uh, and I've been following it ever since. I have a website, jeffwise.net, where people, uh, where I post some of my you know, research and people respond to it. Some people uh, post their own research. And there's kind of a very active online community of people who are technically knowledgeable about the case and are trying to push it forward. Uh, as you probably know, the authorities have suspended their efforts. Um, we're waiting for a final report from the Australians, which they said they're going to release in the third quarter. Um, and it, and it's pretty much winding down, but there's still a lot to be done. And I think that actually the case will be solved by independent researchers. Uh, we should note that you've also been – I've seen you personally because I'm a big fan of the show. You've been on the May Day show too. Uh, yes. yes. As a I spokesman, have. as, a, as a, a person who is an expert on aviation and aviation crashes, you've been on a few episodes of that show as well. Yeah, I have. I haven't done one lately, but uh, yeah, they would call me up from time to time and have me go be a talking head. Talking about Flight 370, do you remember where you were when you heard that it disappeared and what were your immediate reactions? And do you think a person as yourself in the aviation industry maybe reacts to it a little bit different than the rest of the population? You know, I don't remember where I was when I first heard about it, but you have to recall that when it first transpired, it didn't seem like a particularly remarkable case. I mean, it was a big big potential tragedy and a lot of people were going to die. But planes do go down, you know, from time to time, and it seemed like there was a number of things it could be. Just remember, the plane took off from Kuala Lumpur on March 8th, 2014. It was heading for Beijing. It was supposed to be about a six-hour flight. 40 minutes into the flight, it just vanished from radar screens. And... It it didn't it didn't reappear as as it should have, and so 
you know, it could have been in-flight fire. It could have been some kind of mechanical failure. It could have been any of a number of things. Um, and there was an expectation that it would unfold the way these things generally do. Debris would be found. Black boxes would be found. Um, and the authorities would be able to piece it together. Obviously, that didn't happen. So that was the initial thoughts of the public, but then we get more information. And when did this new information, how long after the flight disappeared, did this new information come out, and what did it say? I like to call MH370 the triple disappearing airplane because it really effectively vanished three times. The first time uh, when it disappeared from air traffic control screens. And that happened because the plane uh, was actively transmitting information about its location and speed to air traffic control uh, systems, uh, which are automatically, you know, recorded and displayed uh, on the on the flight controller's screens. That equipment was turned off. And once that happened, the air traffic controllers couldn't see it anymore. However, and that was immediate. Then, so that was immediate. That's what was known first that the plane had vanished from these screens. Uh, later, a uh, few days later, as I recall, um, the military uh, piped up and said, "Oh, hey, by the way, once it disappeared from your radar, your air traffic control secondary radar screens, as it's called, um, we saw it on our primary radar screens. This is the this is the passive radar that sort of it's almost like a flashlight." beaming uh, radiation into the sky, detecting the radiation that's bounced off of the plane. And so it doesn't, the plane doesn't have to be actively transmitting anything. You can, the, the military can passively see this plane flying through the air. We saw it turn around, do uh, essentially a 180 fly back over Malaysia, the Malaysian Peninsula, up the uh, Malacca Straits, over towards the Andaman Islands, and then it disappeared again. So this is the second disappearance. Uh, and so the shift, the, the search for the plane's debris shifted from the South China Sea to the Andaman Sea on the other side of the Malay Peninsula. And that's where it stood for about a week. Uh, and then Inmarsat piped up and said, oh, hey, by the way, um, we actually looked into our database and it turns out that we recorded signals received by our satellite for up to six hours after it disappeared uh, from primary radar. And then it vanished again. So that's the third vanishing. So, um, mm. you know, th this, was, this was why it became such a huge news story because it wasn't just that the plane crashed, but that th these incredible revelations kept turning up and the revelations kept continuing. So that, uh, a little bit after that, then it turns out that the Malaysians had, I mean, the, the, the Inmarsat and the engineers there had come up with a new mathematical way of analyzing the data that they had. And they were able to determine something about where the plane had gone. And the math was a little bit fuzzy and they, they didn't quite understand it perfectly, um, but they figured that it had either gone into the uh, Southern Indian Ocean or um, up to Kazakhstan. And then with this math, and determined that in fact, it had to have gone into the Southern Ocean. Then the Malaysian prime minister said, okay, that everyone has to be dead because the math says that, that, that it's in the Southern Indian Ocean. There's no way to survive down there. 
And so this was a really extraordinary turn of events in my estimation that for the first time in history, as far as I'm aware, math, just based on purely in mathematics, this plane full of people had been declared dead. And of course now, as you might imagine, the passengers weren't really satisfied by this. The public hadn't been, it hadn't been explained to the public how this math worked. Right. And so the public was just being told, hey, trust us. We, we've done this math, it's, it's right. Uh, and so stop wondering if they're, if they're alive or not because they're not alive. Uh, this outraged, there was like riots in Beijing where a lot of the relatives of the, of the passengers lived. Um, and so it went on and there was more further revolution, revelations, more shoes to drop. And of course now here we are three years later and they've spent over $150 million and they have not found the plane, which they assured the public, we're going to spend this money, but then we're going to find the plane. Didn't happen. So there's a lot. So it just the mind boggles. The story just, you know, you know, it's 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 this you couldn't have dreamed up a more compelling, fascinating, ongoing, baffling, maddening story than MH370. And unfortunately, you know, the public and the media have kind of thrown up their hands and, and you know, said, we don't really understand what's going on. We hear these crazy theories coming out from time to time. We just don't know what to make of it. And the authorities haven't really helped because, you know, from time to time they say, oh, we figured something else up. Now we, we know where it is. Uh, but then they kind of consistently don't find it. If we could go back for just a moment to talk about Immersat, for the average person who maybe isn't that familiar with how a jet works and how it beams information, is this something like for maybe the common person to, if they were to go something like flightradar24.com, does that get its information from this company Immersat? And its satellites, is that how that works? Just like I said, for the common person who isn't a pilot and just flies like once a year. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And the answer is no, the, the information does not come from Inmarsat. And, and, and people, um, there's kind of an ongoing tendency for people to look at Flight Radar um, 24 data and see strange things happening and say, wow, I see UFOs or I see some physically impossible behavior or I see something that the press isn't telling us about. The thing you need to know about Flight Radar 24 is that it's wildly inaccurate. Uh, they get their information from sources that aren't really vetted, that aren't really that reliable. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm not criticizing it, but it's like one of these things like for entertainment purposes only. Like don't use this to write an article about it or to assume that something actually is happening. It's, it's just very, very unreliable. Um, now, the Inmarsat data is something completely different. Um, what happens is... Um, airlines subscribe to this service whereby, um, just as, just like you would subscribe to a cell phone service, um, they are able to communicate with the ground by sending signals up to space and then it's being back down and then it's routed around and eventually it winds up going, the message or the telephone call goes where it's supposed to go. Now, it turns out that this particular subscription that in uh, that Malaysia Airlines had with Inmarsat was such that um, every half hour the plane would sort of send an update, just kind of saying where it is and what's going on with the plane, uh, in case there was some problem or maybe one of the engines was acting up, that they'd, they'd be able to sort of get that message automatically routed through. Um, all those systems were turned off um, when the plane vanished from, from the air traffic control radar screens. 
the plane went electronically dark. What was really interesting was that the system, the satellite communication system, was turned back on about 40 minutes after that. So the plane had disappeared. It had disappeared twice. It had vanished once from secondary radar screens, the air traffic control. Yeah. It had then vanished from the primary radar screens. This is the military radar. Then three minutes after that, boom, it's back online. It's back communicating with the satellite. But what's really interesting is that the whole suite of electronics hadn't been turned back on. The part of the electronics that was sending messages saying, here we are, this is where we are, this is what we're doing, that didn't come back online. All that came back online was the signal between the plane and the satellite. Now you can imagine like if you turn on your cell phone, the cell phone connects to the nearest tower and says, hey, I'm here, and it's waiting. It's waiting for an incoming call. It's waiting for an outgoing call. Um, nothing was actually sent. So nobody, um, you know, the, they could have used a telephone to make a call. They didn't. Um, actually, two uh, phone calls came in, but nobody answered them. It just rang and rang. So you've got a very peculiar situation. And so myself and, and a, a, a few uh, other people who follow this um, obsessively and talk about it online, tried to answer the question, how is it possible for this system to come back online? Can it have it ac accidentally? Is it possible, say, that the plane you know, enters into a steep bank and then, and then the, the antenna isn't able to communicate with the satellite for a little while? To make a long story short, it seems that this could not happen accidentally, that the only way that the, that the planes uh, could stop communicating with the satellite and then start communicating with the satellite again is that somebody had to actively turn off and turn back on the system. And the only way somebody can do that, though, is you can't do that from the cockpit. You actually have to go down into the electronics bay, which is actually under the cockpit. There's like a trap door outside right. of the cockpit to get down in there. Right. One of the really interesting things that turned up as we delved into the details of this mystery uh, is that there's a hatch in the front of the business class cabin, uh, which is near the, it's in between the galley and one of the uh, lavatories. And it's unlocked usually on most airlines. Uh, and you pull back a carpet and there's this handle and you pull the handle and there's a little staircase and you go down and you're in the belly of the planes, electronics and equipment bay. And you can essentially, if you know what you're doing, take over control of the plane and you can change the signals that are sent to the, the satellite. Now, um, it is possible to turn off this system from the cockpit if you know what you're doing. Um, there's actually two ways to turn the power to the satellite. It's called the satellite data unit. Uh, that's the system that communicates with the satellite. There's two ways to do that. One is from the cockpit, one is from the EE bay. Uh, both require pretty sophisticated knowledge of the plane's electronic systems. And a few months after the plane disappeared, some of the people that uh, were working on this went to a top-level flight simulator facility where one of the airlines, one of the big American carriers, trains its pilots and went into one of these super-realistic simulators and asked the, the, the people who run the simulator how do you turn off the satellite data unit? And their answer was, what? <laughs> what they, are you talking they about? They didn't even know that you could do it. They didn't know that was possible. 
They this... had ne- the average pilot does not know what a satellite data unit is, oh. let alone know how to turn it off and turn it back on again. So the point that I keep trying to drive home to people is this, the mere fact that this thing was turned off and turned back on again implies a certain level of sophistication of whoever carried this thing out. And by the way, just by saying that, I've implied what I should just say outright, which is that there's absolutely no evidence. In fact, there's strong uh, evidence against the idea that the plane suffered some kind of an accident, that there was some kind of malfunction or a fire or something unintentional. It seems quite clear that whatever happened to this plane was done by people because they wanted to do it. Somebody took this plane. This was not an accident. This okay, is a well, point. That, let's, right, let's maybe hold yeah. off to that to a little bit later okay, in sure, the because sure, uh, sure. you get into that in your book, and I definitely want to talk right. to you about that. But, sure. um, but maybe just real quickly, uh, the pilot of the plane or the co-pilot of Flight 370. Is there anything in their histories that would show that either one of them would have known how to do that? Just real very quickly, anything in their histories? Um, no, zero. Nothing in their history would show that they would know how to do that. Okay. Uh, speaking of the data, and I don't want to get too much into the weeds on this, but there are two different types of data that were analyzed. Like you talked about mathematics, trying to locate, uh, where the plane might've gone down. It's BFO data and BTO data. If you can maybe simply explain the difference of them, but also how they're supposed to both be fairly reliable, but they tell people different things. Can you go into that maybe a little bit? Yeah, I'll try to keep it real, real simple. The BTO is called burst timing offset. And basically, it tells you how far the plane is from the satellite. And uh, when you plot that out on a map, for any given, for any, and there's seven of these. And so we have seven, and they're about an hour apart. And we know, so at each of these moments, how far the plane was from the satellite. And, this, and you can plot this on the ground as an arc. And so this arc runs from Kazakhstan in the north down through Thailand. Uh, you imagine a big circle that kind of go, cuts through Indonesia and then winds up in the ocean uh, far to the uh, south, southwest of Australia. So like thousands of miles out in the ocean. And, and because of some other things, having to do with the, the planes, how the autopilot works and so forth. It's a mathematical um, ledger domain. Uh, it turns out that the plane, based on this data alone, the plane either wound up in the remote far southern Indian Ocean or up in Kazakhstan at either end of these arcs. Um, so that's the BTO data. And the BTO data is very easy to understand and it's quite reliable and it's quite accurate. So that it's like... It, it, the arc is, is accurate to about plus or minus 10 kilometers or about plus or minus five miles, more or less, six Which miles. It's very considerable considering how big the Earth is. Yeah, it's really quite accurate. And so, and, and so when, if you're going to go look in the southern Indian Ocean, it, it gives you a pretty good idea of where you should look. Yeah. Um, and I, parenthetically, I should add that some other data, well, okay, let me, let me move on to BFO, BFO. Uh, burst, sure. burst, fr- burst frequency offset. Now, this is a little bit harder to understand. But as the plane is moving around relative to the satellite, its frequency is changing. Uh, And you, if you've ever like heard a train whistle as it goes past, like as the plane, as the train's coming towards you, it's the frequency 
uh, increases, and then it goes as the train passes, you perceive a lower frequency. Would, and so that a, same yeah. would a good example of that be like a maybe like a maybe people are familiar with like a police siren as it's coming. Yeah, it, and it it, it yep. kind of uh, goes into a minor key as it goes away from you. It goes absolutely down into, okay, something like that. Okay, great. For, yeah, it's called Doppler shift. Sure. And 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 what makes it complicated is that the planes. Uh, this satellite data unit that I mentioned was designed to compensate for that so that it was it was actively changing its frequency so that the satellite would not perceive a, ch a change in frequency. But that that algorithm that was used to generate that change of, of frequency was was wrong. It was it was there were some problems with how it was implemented, which is a good thing because due to these flaws, Scientists were able to go back and and extract some information about how the plane was moving from this BFO data. Now, it's it, it's it's not simple to explain what it tells you, mm -hmm. but the sim the, the most important thing that it tells you is that the plane couldn't have gone north; it must have gone south. And so that's why the prime minister said, "Oh, the passengers are all dead." It was because of this this fancy mathematics derived from the BFO data. Um, but it also could be used and it was hoped that in fact, in, in the first months after the plane disappeared in Marsat scientists believed that by combining the BFO and the BTO data, they would essentially be able to create a kind of X, Y intersection so they could pinpoint more or less where the plane was. And it would be pretty simple to just go down and find it. Mm -hmm. It later turned out that the BFO data was fuzzier then they realized, and they wound up not using it for that purpose. Um, but for the in the first months after the plane disappeared, there was a lot of excitement about figuring out how the BFO values were derived and using that to pinpoint the plane. Okay, so the BFO data, somewhat reliable, but the BTO data, very reliable. The problem with the BTO, <clears throat> excuse me, the uh, data is it shows that the plane could have gone in two different directions, two totally different directions. Exactly right. It's a very binary uh, uh, situation where it either went here or it went there. But as I said, but that, but as time went by and the scientists lost faith in their ability to use the BFO data to pinpoint where the plane actually went on these arcs, they came up with an alternative solution, which was to it had to do with Bayesian uh, analysis of um, different possibilities where the plane could have gone based on its available um, uh, autopilot settings. And that's how they wind up deciding where to, to spend all their $150 million to look for the plane. Um, yeah. And let's talk about that. I, you, um, I guess we could say we're in the minority. You were in the minority. I wouldn't say from the beginning, but at some point, and I know it's, uh, you write about it in your book, you were kind of in the minority compared to all these other aviation people. These other people were pretty sure that the plane was going to be found in either one of those two areas in the South Indian Ocean using the BFO da data and the BTO data. You, right. however, weren't as hopeful. Can you tell me why that was? And can you had a couple stories about what went on behind the scenes maybe that you can share? <laughs> share, share. Yeah, I was, I, I, was, I, was, I was in kind of a minority of one on this case kind of from the get-go. I had spent a lot of time writing about Air France 447 
And I was really struck by, a, from the very beginning, by a very peculiar aspect of, of MA370, which was that, I mentioned that all the electronics were turned off on the plane. Some people thought, oh, maybe it was uh, like a fire, like caused the electronics to burn out. But it was very interesting to me that, so the, the plane was leaving Malaysian airspace and it passed a waypoint called Igari. Six seconds after it passed Igari, the plane went dark, six seconds. Now, there's a thing that happens when you leave one air traffic control area and then you enter another air traffic control area. There's a kind of a gap. And during that gap, nobody's really responsible for you. Nobody's really paying attention to you. Air France 447 was crossing a huge stretch of ocean, and so this gap was very large. And so it was actually in this gap for several hours, and, it, and it, so it was a long time before anyone noticed that the plane was missing, but, for, but, but it took people a long time to, to, to sense that the plane had gone down. Malaysian Airlines MH370 only had about three minutes. But during that three minutes, that's when it went dark and it turned around. And it wasn't just some random time during those three minutes. It was immediately, like six seconds after it entered this gap, um, it turned around and, and did this mysterious behavior. This seemed incredibly suspicious to me. This seemed to me that a highly motivated act. And, and I should point out that once they turned around, they flew at high speed. Like they actually accelerated um, from the speed that they were doing and high, they hightailed it. This seemed to me to indicate motivation. Motivation to do what? If you're going to fly into the southern Indian Ocean, you're going to die. And people do commit suicide in planes, but what it usually looks like is that people um, point the plane straight down and, and, and end it quickly. You know, you're not going to like, if you're going to shoot yourself in the head, you're not going to like somehow, you know, rig the tri trigger to some contraption that like kills you six hours from now. Like yes. what, who wants to like prolong their agony? So it seemed to me very, 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 very suspicious. So I thought there was some kind. So I very quickly, and I was really in the minority in that. And so I, I, this whole thing sounded very fishy to me. And then I kind of was in, I was in the minority again um, when about two months after the plane disappeared, they started, uh, wait, no, it was, it was a month. It was after the first month. Was it two months? Anyway, it's been a long time. They detected these pings, these acoustic, different kind of ping, these acoustic pings from the seabed. Because they had given up hope of, of, of finding the wreckage. They were, they'd been searching for the wreckage on the, on the surface of the sea and they couldn't find anything. So they, they put uh, these you know, hydrophones in the water and lo and behold, the first time they put the hydrophones in the water, they start detecting these pings. And everyone said, except me, uh, oh, hey, we found the plane. And, and I remember being on CNN and one of the correspondents from Australia was saying, that he, his sources within the uh, officialdom in Australia were saying, quote, they, it's, they've as good as found it. Like they consider like it's case closed. We've heard the pings, we've found it. And I said, actually the frequency that they detect these pings at is wrong. And a little, it's only a little bit wrong, but it's too much too wrong. And the, the, and the physical location of where you detected these pings is too far apart. The, de the detection range is, isn't that great. And so we, and yeah, there was so like, we almost got into like a fist fight backstage after one of these segments on CNN, not between me and the, and the guy, uh, but, but between another person who, who agreed with me that there was something wrong with it. There was a, 
an, an undersea explorer who was like, this, this isn't, it's not possible that the frequency could be this far off. And so, but this is like really emblematic of the story as a whole, where you've got these really widely varying pattern um, differences of belief between different so-called experts. And, um, you know, I remember Bill Nye, the science guy, was on at one point uh, during this particular segment of the mystery. And he was saying, oh, yeah, there's this thing called refraction that changes the frequency of, of sound and light waves. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You're the science guy and you're telling me that refraction changes frequency? That's just absolute no, nonsense. No, of course it doesn't. And, um, you know, so it was frustrating. It's been frustrating for me because I feel like the, the media has done a terrible job of, of um, you know, accurately describing what's going on with search. The authorities have done a terrible job and the public has done a terrible job. Mm. You've had all sorts of people who kind of get crazy theories in their head and, and, and start, you know, running around the internet trying to propose their, their theory, which is not grounded in anything. The, the, the main takeaway that I, you know, would, would like to, to say to anyone who's interested in this case is that this is a deeply technical scientific mystery. It is. Sure, that's absolutely true. You read the book. You read your book. That is absolutely true. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, I the, the, I was thinking about this the other day, and like an analogy that comes to mind is like imagine you go to Yosemite and like you see this cliff wall, and it's like this sheer rock face, and you look at it, and like at a at a coarse grain level of understanding, um, you, you it seems impossible. It's like this is a and, and indeed for like ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the population. It's, it's an unclimbable wall. It's, it's literally impassable. But if you, go to, if you go up to it and you really examine it closely, you'll see that there are tiny little finger holes. And if you start climbing, if you, and if you have this skill and the knowledge and this physical strength, you can grab onto these little finger holes and go up it, and you'll find another finger hold and another toe hold. And amazingly, it's possible to climb this wall. And I think MH370 is kind of an example of that where it's like, at a gross level, at a coarse grain level, it is an unsolvable mystery. But if you if you approach it carefully and meticulously and look at it, there's it actually turns out that there are finger holds, and you can carefully climb up this wall and you, and you get somewhere. It turns out that these assumptions that people make turn out not not to be true. And I remember particularly being amazed when, by asking the right questions, it turned out that the satellite data unit, A, had been turned off and turned back on again, which was, which was really overlooked by almost everybody. But also the fact that no, if you went up to any, any airline captain, I would go up to, I know a lot of airline pilots because I fly recreationally and a lot of airline pilots also fly recreationally. And I was, and I, every time I'd say to somebody, how do you reboot the SDU? And they'd all look at me and say, what's an SDU? This is not something that they're trained to do. It's not something that they're supposed to do. It's something that the airline actually doesn't want them to do. So, mm -hmm. um, there's, so, and, but people, but there was a, one of the most popular books that was written about the mystery of MH370. Um, just the, the, I had lunch with this woman and she's like, I don't understand the BFO data. It's too, it's, oh, it's, it's like beyond my ken. And then how can she write a book about I, 370 if she doesn't understand that? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm like, you have, if you don't understand the BFO data, you have no business even like weighing in on this topic. Um, but she had so much, she had done some other reporting and it turned out there was like the, one, uh, one of the planes in the fleet had had problems with it, with a windshield uh, at some point. So she spun up this whole theory about the windshield and how the 
de- depressurization and hypoxia and it just, you know, it doesn't, you have to, like I said, like, it's like climbing that wall in Yosemite. You have to look for where the cracks are. You can't just make big, big assumptions about, oh, I don't know much about climbing walls, but, you know, maybe there's an elevator. Do you top, think that this know, reeks of opportunism? It's so popular, so people are going to write a book so they can make a couple bucks out of it, even if the data isn't totally true? Yeah, I mean, I think there's an element to that. I think there's an element of people overestimating their own expertise or the, or the applicability of their own expertise. Um, and I think people feel entitled to weigh in. I think everyone think, you know, <laughs> they say, I don't know what, I shouldn't use bad language, but like everyone's got one, you know, everyone's, everyone's got an opinion. Right. I w- uh, we should mention the title of your book because I want to, oh, yeah. um, mention something about when you, st- I want to talk about when you started writing it and also the search that was done. The book is of course called the plane that wasn't there. When did you start writing that? And in relation, what was that in relation to when the search started in, um, I also want to ask you, were you a little nervous when that search started? You had put yourself out there with this theory that it, you know, the plane wasn't going to be found and everything, and they start the search. Was there, were there days that you woke up saying, boy, I hope I, I'm proven that I'm not wrong? Oh, my God. My ass was so hanging in the wind. <laughs> it was so hanging in the wind. And it wasn't just, I mean, I, mean, I, re- I was going on TV like four or five times a day sometimes. And I was saying, I don't think it's, the, I don't think the acoustic pingers are, they're not going to find it. It's not there. And it was just, I mean, I felt like morally, you know, compelled to say like, this is not, this is not what you're, what you're saying is not true. Sure, sure. Um, and this is not what they really wanted to hear mm-hmm. <laughs> on CNN. But, um, and so, yeah, I mean, I could have been proven wrong at any moment. And then, but, I started to think about my alternative explanation um, really hardcore in June of 2014, and the and the search hadn't the seabed so search. Very, so only started. like three months in, then very very shortly, three months in. I yeah, I really vividly remember um, a guy named Mike Exner, who is a member of the independent group, who who does not at all agree with me uh, about my theory. On the, on the contrary, he's been a very um, vocal supporter of the official uh, line. Okay. Um, but he's also very knowledgeable about these systems. And I remember him explaining to me how the satellite data unit works and how the frequency uh, precompensation algorithm works. And I realized, oh, my God, this plane could have been – they could have spoofed the BFO data. And – so we can't trust it. I mean, and, and this, is the, this is the thing that to this day, I've like multiple times asked the official investigators, how do you know that the BFO data wasn't spoofed? How do you know somebody didn't go down into the unlocked hatch of the electronics equipment bay and alter the equipments to make it look like it was going south, but actually was going north? Right. And they've never, they've never addressed the question. They've never answered. Well, the answer that they gave me was, we assume the data was good. And... It's pretty. It's pretty strange because they spent all of this money, and oh my god, fifty million dollars in United <sighs> States dollars. I mean, I wish. I mean, I, I should emphasize. Nobody. Amazon gave me some money for my Kindle single, and I got some money from from um, New York Magazine for writing an article about it. Um, but apart from that, like I've gotten nothing. 
uh, and, and it's like, it's been kind of a financial hardship because I got so obsessed with this case that I was spending way too much time doing this instead of work that would I get paid for. People think, oh, you're just saying this because you want to get, you're, you're just being greedy. I'm like, greedy? What? A, you know, they spent $150 million. Somebody's got, somebody has $150 million in their pockets for the, because they, because of the official theory. I have no money in my pockets apart from what I just mentioned for my theory. Um, but you know, it's hell to be right sometimes, isn't it, Jeff? I would, I, well, yeah, my, I can just imagine my wife rolling her eyes at that idea. But, um, you know, it's, I wish I had a tiny, tiny fraction of that $150 million for all my hard work, but, um, it doesn't matter. I mean, the point just being, it's incredible to me that they've never even addressed. They've never said, I mean, I said, like, even just tell me this is why we know it couldn't have been spooked. Not just it's unlikely, or it's really, really hard. I, you know, here's the thing I, I will acknowledge right up front. If this was done, if this spoof was done, it was a, it was a feat of incredible, incredible sophistication. It's like, I would liken it to putting a man on the moon or the Hiroshima bomb. It's a, it's a mind-blowing achievement. Um, but I think, and a lot of people say, well, they couldn't have pulled it off. It's beyond their capability. And I would say you'd be, you'd be surprised what people are capable of doing. Can we talk about that a little later? I want to get to the sure, plot. Yeah, I want to get yeah, to the other part yeah. of that. The part that okay. did happen after you started writing your book. And then it's because finally some wreckage did start appearing on the yeah. shores of Africa. Talk a little bit about that. And what does the wreckage say? What does the debris say? Everything about that. So I came out with my Kindle single. I came up with an article in New York Magazine and then a Kindle single around the same time. Basically, I, I went public in like, I don't know, first quarter of 2015 saying that the plane isn't in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, and then in, and it, it was sort of starting to get some traction. I have to say, like people were saying, hmm, this plane disappeared. There's not a single trace of it. All we have is this math. This guy's saying that the math could be wrong. Maybe we should pay attention to this. And then in Ju at the end of July 2015, this is a day I remember vividly. Okay. Um, this piece of, a, a piece of the plane finally turned up. Now remember, they'd spent months searching for it from the air, uh, searching it for it from ships. Uh, they hadn't found anything at the time of the crash or shortly after the crash, but then a year and a half later, uh, or 15 months later, um, this piece washes up. It's discovered by a beach cleanup crew on the island of Reunion, which is a French uh, possession in the in the Western Indian Ocean. Is and it like uh, a little north of Madagascar, right? It's east of Madagascar. East of Madagascar. Okay, east of Madagascar. Okay. So you so a piece drifting from the east eastern Southern Indian Ocean would get there first before it got to Madagascar. Okay. Um, and. It's a big old chunk of plane. It's about like, I don't know, six or eight feet long. And it takes about six guys to pick it up and carry it away. It's covered in barnacles, these, you know, these marine organisms that grow on things that drift in the, in the open ocean. Um, and it's whisked off to France. And the, the French do some analysis of it. They don't release the analysis, but some of this analysis gets leaked and so we have a little bit of information about it. But if for most people, this is like, okay, case closed. It's definitely in the Southern Indian Ocean. Here's this piece that washed up. And um, so uh, Jeff Wise is definitely wrong. <laughs> and that's, that's it. Um, 
of course, my my thinking is, well, okay, I'm probably wrong. I'll admit that I've I've had egg on my face before, but let's look at this thing. Like let's just like not let let's just assume we because for months we've been sort of wondering. You know, if somebody did hijack this plane and take it, if the math is wrong, if the plane wound up going somewhere else, then somebody could, pl- could take a piece of it and put it on a beach. Sure. And, it would, and they could, pl- and that would be an o- a really obvious and sort of fairly easy way to just keep the game going. And 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 some of it, some of them had, some people had even suggested that this was evidence against my theory that no debris had turned up because it would be such an obvious thing for anyone with nefarious intent to do. Um, so anyway, so with being being skeptical uh, as I was, um, I started to like dig around and and try to you know figure out is this does this flapper on look the way it should? And so I spent an awful lot of time talking to people who are experts in drifting debris the organisms that live on drifting debris and there was something very quickly that what is a flapper on just real quickly for your average listener out there how would you describe a flapper on to your average uh person who flies once a year sure so you know if you've ever sat on a plane and you notice that as you're taking off and landing there are these bits of metal on the back of the wing that move up and down um, and, the, the, and there's flaps and the flaps are something that you deploy on landing so that the plane can land slower. There's also these things called ailerons that move up and down and that helps the, that tells the plane to bank left or right. And, um, the flap run is sort of a combination of flap and aileron, hence the name. Okay. But, um, so it's a, it's a, it's a piece of metal that sticks out into the airstream and it, um, it helps to control the plane. Okay. So it was broken in ways that seemed, you know, hard to explain. Um, and what was really, what really struck me uh, was that in one of these leaked French reports, no, I should back up. It was before the, the report was leaked, but very early on, it was, it was stated by the French that the piece had floated fully immersed. And this immediately made my ears perk up because um, things don't float immersed. Things float either at the surface or they sink. You either float or you sink. And if you've ever scuba dived, you've experienced this, where it's actually pretty hard to stay uh, floating stable in the middle of the water you column. Really work your BCU. Really, uh, you got it. Really got it to get it just right to stay in the middle. Yes. Yeah, you'll know every time you take in a breath, you start to rise, and every time you breathe out, you start to sink. If you're perfectly balanced. Um. Uh, obviously an, an inert piece of metal can't do this. It either has positive, you could, so you can, you can even imagine something having like a 0.00000 neutral buoyancy. Um, but then, you know, things are going to happen like barnacles start to grow on it and that makes it heavier and it sinks. So the fact that this, so, so this really piqued my curiosity and I said, okay, how is it possible? So I looked at the pictures and I could see what they meant. The, the, the barnacle, the flapron was covered on every surface in barnacles um, and I, and I, the, the, carna, the, the, the barnacle is called lepus, genus lepus. It's uh, called a goose barnacle. Um, there's different species of goose barnacle that live in that part of the world. Um, and I think it was determined to be lepus anatifera. And I wound up reaching out to, there's only about six people in the world who study these things uh, in a serious way. And uh, so I learned a lot about the lifestyle. At first I thought that the barnacles were too small um, to have 
to be that old, but it turns out that there's complicating factors that maybe they could have like been, you know, eaten by a sea turtle and then grown back or something. So that turned out to be less, um, uh, uh, have less evidentiary value than I suspected. But what was interesting was that, um, the most interesting thing was that the, the flaperon was completely covered in these things that only grow and live underwater. And so if you, if you, if you ever go down to the ocean and you find like a floating buoy or something, the barnacles will be living on the part of that object that float that are underwater. They won't be living above the water line for obvious reasons. What they live by, uh, you know, they, they're like fish. Mm -hmm. They need to breathe. They need yeah. water to breathe. Yeah. They, they gather their food from the water. It doesn't make sense for them to be living on top of a dry surface where they're going to get blasted by radiation from the sun. And it's pretty obvious, right? Okay. Well, what was really interesting was that the French were baffled because Based on the distribution of barnacles, the piece must have floated immersed, which I said is impossible. Or, uh, but when they put it in the tank to test how it floated, it floated half sticking up out of the water. And so they were like, well, okay, this, how do you reconcile? They can't, you can, they could not reconcile the flotation test with the barnacle distribution. So when they, when they decided to do an analysis of how the, the winds and the waves would have carried the flaperon, they had to do two simulations, one floating high and one floating submersed. And they came up with two different results. And interestingly, um, the Australians have never acknowledged this difficulty. The, the, the French only acknowledged it in a secret report that was not intended for distribution. The Australians just ignored it and they based their drift models on the, the flotation tests. Um, so to me, this is like, okay, this is highly problematic that you've got a piece that, which floated in an ostensibly impossible way. So how, so can we, this to me is a red flag. It's not, it's, it's not probative in any sense, but it says, okay, something might be going on here. And then other debris, then a few months later, other debris started to turn up. Um, and it looked quite different and, 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 and altogether over the span of about six months, um, or maybe a little longer, uh, altogether, a little bit over 20 pieces turned up and it's hard to have an exact figure because some of them look like airplane parts, but it's, it, it's hard to really tell. But I think what's most interesting to note is that most of these pieces were found by one person. This person is, uh, named Blaine Allen Gibson. And he had been, he'd been roaming around the Indian ocean basin for a a couple of years, or at least a year by this point, uh, sort of on his own dime, just walk around talking to people, kind of spinning different theories that didn't really have much um, scientific basis or plausibility, but that, you know, he was, so he, he is a guy who had kind of, you know, been on searches around the world looking for the lost Ark of the Covenant, mm -hmm. um, investigating some Mayan mysteries and stuff. So he was kind of a Discovery Channel kind of guy who was interested in this stuff. And nobody else who deliberately went looking for pieces ever found a piece of this plane. Blaine Allen Gibson found his first piece after 20 minutes after he first started looking. Um, and he twice found pieces while camera crews were rolling on he him. He had the one with the four wheeler, the, the four wheeler. Yeah. He was yeah. driving around a four wheeler with a camera crew on there and there's a piece. And there, and meanwhile, you've got sort of like annual beach cleanups in South Africa where like you've got 10,000 people, you know, searching the, you know, cleaning up debris from the beach gunk and junk from the beach and they've got you know been handed flyers saying keep an eye out for for aircraft debris 
none of them ever find anything. Some people accidentally find pieces um, on the African coast and in, and, uh, and, and, and in other islands. But nobody from Blaine ever finds, and I, so I'm saying this sounds kind of suspicious to me. But sure it does. Again, oh, and the other thing about Blaine's pieces is that unlike the Flaperon and some of the other pieces that turned up, all of his pieces are like suitcase size or less, like you could fit it in a suitcase. And none of them, I've talked at length about the Lepus Barnacles, none of his pieces have any marine life on them. And I spent a lot of time talking to people who study how organisms colonize things that float through the ocean. And pretty much, if you put something in the ocean, and if you've ever owned a boat, I think you'll know what I'm talking about. You don't put something in the ocean and expect it to remain clean. No. It's a no. very relentless process why gunk gets on your thing. And barnacles, there's all kinds of hydrozoans and various other entities that will attach uh, algae and so forth. There's a reason that I live in Madeira Beach, Florida, so I'm surrounded uh, by salt water. There's a reason that people who own boats have winches to lift their boat, boats out of the water after they take them out in the Gulf. Because if you leave your boat sitting in there all the time, it'll be trashed in no time. Yeah. And so now a piece that floats across the ocean is going to come to shore covered in stuff. And if it washes up at a high tide and, and ends up on this sort of, you know, beyond the fringe of dried up seaweed, it'll get picked over by crabs and seagulls. And it'll get it'll get cleaned up. And eventually what you get is, uh, and if you've ever beachcombed or anything, you'll be familiar with it looks. It looks like it's been kind of bleached by the sun, kind of um, almost sandblasted by the elements. Um, everything looks kind of pale. Um, and then if there's another high tide, that thing, which has been stripped clean, can be washed back out to sea and then washed back in. So it's not impossible for pieces to cross the ocean and get discovered on the other side with nothing on them. But it requires a kind of a fairly, you know, three-stage process to occur. And you expect it to happen like once in a while, but not most of the time. And also, a lot of the stuff that was discovered, frankly, it looked like this piece had just come out of a box. This stuff looks very, um, some of them, some of them look completely like you'd expect. Some of them look completely covered over in gunk. But, um, but some of them look like they just came out of a box. And so, so and so this, it, this yeah. guy that could possibly, we don't know, nobody's seen him do it or anything, right. maybe might have been planting debris just to get right. attention to himself. Right. Um, so there's that possibility that we have to be very, very open-minded to. Um, but where was this at, stuff I, being found? Was it in the places that you would expect if, it, if the plane crashed in the South Indian Ocean? Um, yes and no. Uh, yes, it's very – this is exactly where you'd expect um, the pieces to be. In fact, Blaine went to an oceanographer in Australia who was working with the search authorities and he said, where should I look? And the guy said, you should look um, on the coast of Mozambique. So he went to the coast of Mozambique, and 20 minutes later, he finds his first piece. That's pretty cool. Um, what, but there was something problematic, which is that the oceanographers spent a long time trying to figure out how will these pieces, wh where would a plane have to crash such that the pieces would wind up where they were found when they were found. And the, not too long ago, um, an organization called CSIRO 
published a paper where they went into enormous depths and they actually made models of the flaperon, put them in the ocean, watched them float, looked at how they stuck out, see how the wind took them. Um, they looked at satellite data that showed them like to within the centimeter how high the sea levels were, so how the water would have flowed. And they were able to determine that the plane, that the, that the flaperon could only have wound up on Reunion Island if it entered the water at about 35 degrees south latitude. Now, this is north of the area that they wound up spending most of their time looking in. Mm -hmm. And so the authorities are, in Australia are now essentially saying, we think we know where the plane is. It must be at 35 degrees south latitude, which is a little bit further north than we spend most of our time looking. What they don't say is that they actually did spend a fair amount of time looking at 35 degrees south. In fact, they searched it out to about 20 nautical miles in either direction. Now, as I said uh, earlier uh, in our discussion, that the BTO values are accurate to about plus or minus 10 kilometers, which is about five or six miles. And so they've searched to within what I would consider a reasonable distance of where a plane in a high-speed descent would have been found. And so I'm skeptical that, that uh, to me, that what, what they're saying is that our whole story doesn't make any sense. Now, there's um, the other but, part of this about the flap, yeah. Ron, and then also about uh, a, you had a post on your site just very recently. Yeah. The, yeah. the like the flaperon and then this part that the hinges were missing, this is not how you would expect these parts to break off right. in your usual type of airplane crash, whether on land or in the ocean. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I talked to a guy uh, who I talked to a couple of guys actually who their job is to look at aircraft debris uh, from plane crashes and 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 see what it can tell them about how the plane uh, came to its demise. And um, basically, there's the, there's various ways that things can break, and 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 the most relevant for our, our present discussion is compression um, failure. Um, and tension, um, which is something when, when something's pulled apart. And compression is when you, if you step on an egg, that's compression failure. And now you can imagine if a plane smashes into a surface like the ocean or land, it's going to be like getting hit by a hammer. You're going to see a lot of compression failure, especially on the front of the plane. Um, things can get kind of sideways ripped off in a way that looks like a tension failure. Um, what's really peculiar is that all of the pieces that were found, we, with one exception, um, all of the pieces that were found uh, came apart by tension failure. Even and what is it? What would be a tension failure? What would be a good example for your average person of tension failure? Um, breaking a string, pulling a string apart, okay. or if you're say you've got a plane and you want to pull a piece off it with a crane or something. Imagine grabbing a piece of a wing and ripping it off. Okay. That's, that would be a tension failure. Um, so yeah, so that, that also raised questions and, and a little bit more about the, um, the drift analysis. They were, they were able to convince themselves that there was a certain way that it could get from the, 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 um, BTO arc to reunion Island if it started at this such and such a place. But if it went into that place, all of the other debris 
didn't really make any sense. Um, it should have arrived there much sooner. And the, and you also would have expected to find pieces washing up in Australia, which, which never happened. And so collectively, when you look at all of the data together about the, about the debris, and you factor in all the, the fact that they spent $150 million searching the seabed and it wasn't there, what you're left with is a, is a whole bunch of data that doesn't make any sense. It does not add up. There's no coherent story. And I've talked to numerous people who are attached or some way affiliated with the official search. And they'll tell you there is no story that we can tell that, that fits with the data that we have. Now, to their mind, what that means is we just don't know what happened. Um, but we do know that it went into the southern Indian Ocean. We just can't figure out what happened. But we've been baffled before. Air France 447, until they found it, was, was, everyone was kind of scratching their heads. They couldn't really figure out what happened. So a lot of people will just, will just tell you we don't know what happened. Whereas I will say... I take all of this failure of the evidence to jibe with each other as evidence that the entire scenario was wrong. Um, I that have to agree with you. Yeah, well. I have to right? agree with you. And, and we should remind uh, maybe the listeners in the flight 447, the Air France uh, crash, uh, that was caused by, I guess what you would say, by pilot error. And yeah. that plane hit, the, hit the ocean very hard, and there were pieces all over the Atlantic Ocean, big pieces. Yeah, uh, that is not what happened in Flight 370. Yeah, no, it was it was quite far out at sea, and yet when they went to look for pieces from the air, they found a lot of them. Mm -hmm. um, and now it is possible. It actually didn't hit the plane. It didn't hit um, the water that hard. It was it was going like 150 miles an hour, um, which is you know way way too fast uh, to be survivable, but. But planes can hit harder. I mean, uh, German wings, which, which sure, happened sure. Um, in also in 2014, was um, I thought that was, was 2015. Um, sorry, 2015. It was the it was the it was soon after the anniversary of of, of MH370. Um, that hit the that hit the, the the mountain going like I don't know four or five hundred miles an hour, and that was like the pieces were much tinier. And so a lot of people were saying, well, maybe it hit so hard that the pieces were too tiny that it couldn't be seen, but um, the point just being that it it uh, you, it hasn't been unfolding the way you would expect a normal quote unquote normal accident to unfold, and that kind of takes us to this. Uh, let's talk about um, a little bit of scenarios, and I just want to ask you some things as we go through this. You you sure. pose a scenario, and I don't know if we want to get deep into the into the, the weeds with this, but you propose a scenario where the plane could have been taken over, uh, much like you mentioned earlier, where somebody could have gotten down into the uh, electronics bay and taken over the plane to the point where the pilots wouldn't be able to do anything. They could be sitting in the cockpit, messing around with a rudder, with the thrusters, no, just nothing would be happening. Um, right. Maybe talk about that a little bit more and talk about how – you mentioned earlier how difficult that would be. It would be like landing somebody on the moon. Yeah. Um, so yeah, once you get into the electronics bay, you've got, you know, the, so the triple seven was the first flyby wire airplane that Boeing built, which means that instead of, you know, the, the controls being connected to wires, connecting to push rods, you know, physically moving the control surfaces, the pilots were telling the computer what they wanted and then the computer was was then you know sending 
uh, information to the actuators that were moving the control surfaces. So if you have control of the computer, you have control of the plane. And you also have control um, of these uh, computers that, that uh, control the communications. And you have control um, over the oxygen system in the plane. Yeah, you actually, there's actually a valve that you can turn to turn off oxygen to the cockpit so that you, you, know, you could conceivably depressurize the plane and suffocate the, the, the pilots. Um, and what was really interesting to me when I started to think about whether, the question was, is it possible that the plane didn't go south? And it turned out that there is a way that it, that it, that it could have been done um, under certain uh, scenario, under certain circumstances. The plane, it would have to be a certain kind of plane. It would have to be a Boeing not an Airbus. It would have to be a 777, not a 757. Uh, it could be a 787, but it couldn't be one of the earlier models. Um, it had to be flying a certain kind of route. It had to have a certain kind of Inmarsat subscription. It had to be flying in a region underneath a certain, one of a few Inmarsat satellites, but not others. Um, everything had to line up for this for this alternate explanation to, to be possible. And it was very curious to me that MH370 fit all of them. I mean, you start getting like down one out of a hundred to one out of a thousand yeah. to one out of 10,000 to one out of a hundred thousand. I mean, the odds, right. are, it's just one particular plane on a particular day right. uh, would, would have been ripe for this kind of scenario. And right. as I have in my notes here, you know, I start thinking about this, this, to me, what you're talking about, this is something that would have had to have been practiced beforehand. I mean, we, if we're going to talk about the moon landing, remember how many times we went to the moon before we actually landed on it. There were practice runs, and we did practices out in the desert and things. And I even have in my notes, like, when the SEALs went to get bin Laden, that was something right. that had to be planned, and they had a mock-up of the compound and everything. And even that didn't go as they planned. I mean, they lost a helicopter over there. But in this particular circumstance— it seemingly they got everything right. I mean, yeah. Well, um, they got everything right, but it would be like I said. I mean, from the very beginning, it seemed to me that if if it was something if something like this occurred, we're clearly talking a state level undertaking. Like I said, it's like equivalent to putting a man on the moon almost. And yeah, how did they know it didn't go wrong? It wouldn't. It was wasn't going to go wrong. Um. And the answer to that is we don't, I mean, we wouldn't know. We, you, you don't know. We're not, all we see is the, <clears throat> all we see is the end result. We don't see if, how it was planned or if it was planned or how they came up with it or, or anything. Um, and, and remember at this point, this is, this is conjectural because sure. I don't, I don't have any smoking gun proof. I have a lot of uh, what I feel is pretty compelling circumstantial evidence. Yeah. Um, but the question is, okay, if the plane isn't in the Southern Indian Ocean, where else could it possibly be? And this is, and the answer is, a, I feel like there's only one answer. You hear a lot of people parenthetically saying, oh, well, I, there was somebody, there were some people, there were some villagers in the Maldives said that they saw this other plane. It, you know, it must have gone to the Maldives. That's impossible. Um, it's impossible n knowing what we know about the science of, uh, of, in Marsat data and what the plane, you know, where the, where the data that we have came from. Now, some people think, oh, the whole thing was just a cooked up hoax, like the fake moon landing, yeah, like the fake Twin Towers bombing. Yeah, well, if you're going to go to that level, then there, there's no point in having a discussion at all. No, no right. Um, 
but um but so anyway yeah you're absolutely right like this is this is like a bin, Ra- bin laden raid this is like um that you know that abortive raid to rescue the hostages from tehran you know sure, how do you know sure. that something this complicated and ambitious isn't going to go wrong and if it goes wrong think about the embarrassment that you know the horror that's right uh, embarrassment um, but so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why this would not be a good idea. And, and, and one of the things people always tell me, uh, the first question many, many people ask me is what about the, what's the motive for taking this plan? And my, and my answer, well, I try to explain what I think the motive could be, but I also, my first answer is I'm trying to tell you how the plan could not be in the Southern Indian Ocean. Like w- the, if it's not there, it had, this other thing had to have happened. And whether this other thing was a good idea or well motivated, I can't. I can't say that. Um, motive but, is know. not an element of a crime. All you have to do is prove that. Like in this show, Unfound, we do mostly missing people. That's all we do. But it's more, right. you know, crime. You know, somebody right. a, a crime of passion, a crime of opportunity. And although we like to talk about the motive, all you have to do is figure out the DNA, the fingerprints, the video cameras, things like that. Motive is just something. You know, it's good for theories. And right. that's essentially what you're saying, too, is that you have all of this data. You don't have to worry about the motive necessarily. Well, I'm, you know, I'm really glad to hear you say that because that's a point that really many people don't don't get. Um, they say, I don't understand the motive for this. Therefore, I'm going to stop listening. And in fact, Richard Quest said that to me on CNN. He's like, what's the motive? And I, and I tried to explain it to him. But he's like, I don't see the motive. I don't think this happened. Um, but you're right. I mean, if I have... 12 young boys buried under my basement it doesn't matter that i that there's no plausible motive for me to do that the only point is that you did it i i did it yeah you know right it certainly looks bad it doesn't look good um so yeah the fact that i'm a nice guy who wouldn't harm a fly and everyone and you know and i you know contribute to the local um you know shriners fund or whatever uh yeah so yeah that's 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 the point i guess i was trying to make that um yeah, we can, let's not worry about motive. Let's worry. Let's look at what actually happened. Right. Uh, the other point, though, to <clears throat> to talk about this, though, and in your, you should say, you say state sponsored. I think that we, you know, can give this away. That maybe let's say that if Russia was involved, and right. I had uh, um, pointed out that sixty percent of the passengers on flight three seventy were Chinese, and I just have a scenario. Well, what happens if it doesn't work? What happens if there are Russians on this plane? They try to take over the plane, they don't succeed. Something goes wrong, and the plane is able either it's crashed in the South China Sea or somewhere where it could be accessed. You get to the black boxes and you figure out that these Russians tried to take over the plane and tried to do something with it. That seems like something that could be pretty explosive if it blew up between China yeah. and Russia. I mean, there's a huge risk there if it was state-sponsored. Now, if it's just a few guys just doing this for kicks, that's something else. But right. if it is state-sponsored, I mean, that could really be trouble. So what you would need is – yeah, I mean, listen, absolutely. But let me back up a little bit. Why Russia? So like I said, we talked about the two kinds of data. The BFO data can be spoofed in a way I've been kind of loosely alluding to. The BTO data is there is no real known mechanism by which the BTO data could be faked. And as I said, the authorities, because they learned not to rely on the BFO, they came up with an alternate method to come up with where the plane would have gone just based on BTO data and using some fancy um, statistical tricks. 
And it turns out that the plane, based on their analysis, if it went north, would have gone to Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan is a close ally of Russia. And really, it, it because, and, the, and like you mentioned, the sophistication of the attack, this sort of moon landing level of, uh, of ambition, you'd have to have an aircraft industry, you'd have to have a satellite communications industry, you'd have to have such deep level knowledge of these things that you really need like either a Russia or like United States, Great Britain, France, Germany, you know, you, you Sweden, you know, you need a kind of like top tier level country. And so um, to get to your point about like, okay, this is a crazy war crime, uh, you know. I'm just thinking about if it doesn't succeed. I mean, right. what the, what the so fallout you, could be. Again, yeah, and so, yeah, you're ha- you'd, you'd have to say who is willing to kill a large number of civilians of a, of a country that they're not at war with um, for what? For what? For, 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 for a motive that is utterly opaque. And which I would agree, like, that is a big, big problem for my theory. Until four and a half months later, another Malaysian Airlines 777, one of only 15, well, there were 15 Malaysian Airlines 777s at the start of 2014. There were 13 at the end of 2014 because two of them out of, and this is, I mean, first of all, the 777 is a very safe airplane. They'd never been lost in flight before. And you have this one Malaysian Airlines 777 disappearing, and then four and a half months later, this plane is flying over eastern Ukraine, and it gets shot down. And now at first, and everyone's like, oh my God, this is a terrible tragedy. This is, like, no, again, what's the motive for someone deliberately doing this? There's no obvious motive for someone doing this. And it's very quickly become, and this is like a whole nother, we could spend a whole nother hour talking about this. But to make a long story short, it turns out that the Russians sent a Buk missile launcher across the border the night before. It parked in this field directly under the path of, of that MH17 was scheduled to fly, waited till the plane was almost overhead, shot it down, um, killed almost 300 people. And that evening, they put the, tr- the missile launcher back on a truck. It goes back across the border, back to the missile brigade that it came from. So you have essentially a chain of command responsibility, because this is not um, some rogue militiamen who accidentally got their hands on a missile and fired it off not knowing what they were doing, and by an incredible stroke of luck. By the way, you know, we mentioned the one in a thousand mm. chance that the plane, that MH370 just happened to be the kind of plane whose BFO you could spoof. Yeah. But now you've got a one in, um, one in uh, you know, 18,000 chance that the, the, the second plane to come to grief also happens to be Malaysian Airlines 777. And you've got ch- chain of command responsibility for, for the destruction of another plane full of passengers that's also attended by all kinds of fake theories that are being floated by the Russians that are ludicrous, including doctored photos and, you know, ginned up um, tests by the maker of the missile and, you know, it's, it's like MH370 in so many regards, except it's much more obvious what happened. And in part, it's obvious what happened because of a really novel and quite ingenious um, detective methodology that was pioneered by an outfit called Bellingcat, which is really a, an English guy named Elliot Higgins and his online um, cohort. And they were able to very meticulously go through 
um, social media posts online and of things like um, dash cam videos and people's photos um, because people noticed that this rocket launcher was was going through their village and that which had never had before and they took pictures and posted it and they basically were able to piece together how this um, how this thing traveled from Russia to Ukraine and back and they were able to identify the perpetrator, the people in the unit, the name of the unit, pictures of people in the unit, even the officer that was in charge of the shoot down. And it's now going to it's going to go to trial at some point. It's very it's a very long process. Um, so you have not only this uh, the, the case of an, an, a horrible act without any clear motive um, in which citizens of you know, innocent uh, citizens are, are killed. Um, but also the attendant kind of fog of obscuration of these theories. Now, one of the things is if you follow MS370 at all, you're well aware that there's like a million theories, yeah, most of is. which seem completely crazy. Yes. And again, with MH17, without any real reason for them to be theories, there's just been this proliferation of theories. Oh, the Americans shot it down, the Ukrainians shot it down, and, um, and fake evidence. And we've seen that same thing with MH370. So these, to me, really seem like sister incidents where they are there's so much that's eerily similar between them okay would you say that flight 370 is the greatest mystery of the 21st century so far i wouldn't i wouldn't limit it to that i mean i would say it's the greatest aviation mystery hands down ever and um and I mean, by by a country mile and i wonder if it's just the greatest mystery ever because it's and it's and it's and if what I'm saying is true, and, I, and I, the way I see it, that, that with every wave of new information we get, any other explanation seems increasingly remote, if it's, it's not only the greatest mystery in terms of like the most compelling and most baffling and, and, and so forth, but it's also the most important in that it was, it was a mystery that was created to be a mystery. It was created to be confounding and baffling and attention diverting. Um, it was, it was, it was, it took place in order to divert attention from Crimea, which had been annexed by Russia the day before. Um, and it was, I think maybe perhaps a show of prowess to show the West what Russia was capable of at a time when Russia was held in very low esteem, frankly, Obama dismissed Russia as a world power. He said they were only a regional power. Um, and when, um, when Vladimir Putin attended the G20 summit that year, he was he was a pariah. You know, he was dismissed and ridiculed. Um, at the G20 summit this year, he was the focus of attention. Um, Russia, uh, you know, in the wake of MH370, you had a slowly dawning realization amongst policymakers in the West that Russia was a real threat and that it was waging this kind of a, a campaign of aggression among, on many, many fronts, not only in terms of military power in Ukraine and Syria, um, but also this kind of uh, these troll armies that were uh, attempting to influence public opinion. If you hit Powerball, like there was that Powerball that was like a billion dollars like a year and a half ago, or you were put in charge of the search and everything right now, what would right. you do? What would you do, Jeff? You're saying if I had all the money in the world or if I could just yeah, do it? Well, if you were in charge of the search, being that the search has been done, Nothing yeah. has been found. They're th- they're trying to figure out where do we go next? What do we do next? If what would you do if you were in charge? I would, you know, and I think it's not so unrealistic. I, I think there should be like a public kind of 
some kind of conference or public forum where people can come and really, I mean, I would love to just sit down with the people running the investigation and say, look, here's my concerns. Here are the points that I've raised. What are your answers to these points? Um, and let's, and, 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 and then from an intelligence perspective, I mean, I think I've identified some loose ends that could easily be chased down by people who had the means um, to carry out a serious intelligence operation. Um, How much of your and, resources, whatever it would be, say if they decide we're going to spend another $150 million to do whatever, how much of that do you think should be devoted to, to continuing uh, searching of the Indian Ocean? Do you think that's fruitful think, or anything? I don't think any money should be spent searching the Southern Indian Ocean. I think it's. I think they've done a pretty good job establishing that it's not there. I feel. I feel like the Australians are making a claim that it. They've that they've identified this area where it must be, um, only because they, because otherwise it would just be too embarrassing. I mean, if they wanted to say, okay, like let's reopen the search, let's search this twenty-five thousand square kilometers, I would say, um, you know, yeah. Uh, fine, go ahead and do that. If that's going to at least, if you will then say that the absence of the plane is a real problem for your model, I mean, I was happy for them to, I, I said, I don't think you're going to find a plane in the Southern Indian Ocean, but I was happy for them to do it because I actually somewhat naively expected that having looked there and not found it, they would go back and say, okay, let's talk to the guy who said we're not going to find it. And let's go look at what he was saying. Uh, they've obviously been unwilling to do that. But uh, you don't have to spend another $150 million. I don't think you have to even spend a million dollars. But I think if you could um, allocate some resources to looking at uh, what, what you've already got. I mean, listen, this whole, this whole narrative, uh, to me, this, the, the mystery of MH370 is, is really two mysteries or two huge challenges. The first challenge is to figure out what the data means. And then the second data is to convince anyone of what the data means. It's, it's, it's a battle. We're, we're in an era of ba battling narratives, but we live in one contiguous reality. If a tree falls in the woods and it's captured by scientific instruments, then, that fall, then the fall of that tree is a real and actual event. And for people to say, well, I have, you know, alternate facts or I have some, once, once you get into the fog, and, I, and as I said, this is really important, the fog is not an unfortunate thing that has sprung up around MH370 and MH17, but the fog, in my view, is an integral part of the mystery. And the it's fog- on It's on purpose. It's, yes. Once you have the fog, you have no longer- a coherent reality that you can use science to tangle with and anything can happen and it, but essentially you have gotten away with it what i'm what i'm alluding to is the chewbacca you know you're familiar with the chewbacca defense no the chewbacca defense is a, is 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 a is a very funny episode of um south park where this kind of johnny cochran figure is like basically it's a parody of the of the oj simpson trial where you guys have a guy who's com caught completely dead to rights you know, his blood is all over the crime scene. He like clearly killed his wife. He's like, it's, he's guilty of sin. So that you can't defend a guy on the facts. So what you do is you undermine the, the validity of the facts and you start. And so the Chewbacca defense is like, why, you know, he starts talking about how did Chewbacca, was Chewbacca a bear? Was, was Chewbacca like a giant rabbit? And he's like, why? And then, well, why am I even talking about Chewbacca? Chewbacca has nothing to do with this case. The whole thing, the whole, nothing makes any sense. 
And so, and so when you, and so the fog is basically the Chewbacca defense. It's like you, you're, you're talking about what are we? We're talking about the fact that no, that no facts are reliable. Uh, and this is a case where basically civilization cannot endure because you, you, your podcast is about criminal justice. It's yes. about solving crimes. It's about a sense of establishing what happened and who's responsible. Sure. If yes. there is no such thing as a shared reality, if there is no such thing as facts, then justice is impossible. I, I will agree with that. Um, and that. so I say, whenever you see the fog, the tendrils of the fog lapping around, you see the Chewbacca, the Chewbacca defense being being raised. You have, and so this is, and so this is basically the two twin. It's you know I, I I sometimes think of it you know if you've ever climbed up a hill or a mountain you're trying to get to the top of the mountain there's often a sensation where like you feel like okay the, I'm just at the top of the mountain I can see there's no more trees there's no more ground I'm going to come over that little rise and then I'm going to be at the top and then you get to that place and you realize oh no there's a whole nother thing I have to go up mm. that's what MH370 was for me it's like oh I, I got to the top of the mountain and I'm like oh my god there's an even huger mountain on top of this mountain. The first mountain being, what does the data tell us about what happened to the plane? And then the second part is, how do I fight through this crazy fog? And talking to you today is hopefully one step up that second mountain, trying to bring to the public the understanding of what happened and why the plane's mystery is so baffling. It's not just because the evidence is so hard to understand. I think actually the evidence isn't that hard to understand. But it's been layered in so many layers of misunderstanding, misinformation, um, and misportrayal, uh, and I, which I hasten to add is, uh, is, is at least hugely um, a flaw of the media and a flaw of the public. Jeff, you were talking about the fog, specifically the Australians. We see them as an ally. We see their country as being very much like the United States in a, a lot of ways. Would you say that they are in the fog right now? Uh, would you say that maybe it's like a willingly denying that there are other possibilities? How do you view it at this point? I think that they – I've talked to um, some of the people involved, and I have, I've been very impressed by the Australians overall. I think they've done a really crackerjack job of – Getting involved into into some really quite esoteric uh, scientific uh, aspects of the case, and I think they're just really hardworking, really, and they've been very open. They've been uh, really, I just think, great. Now they haven't found the plane, and I think that they have sort of fallen victim to uh, if this was a deception, it was you know it was a very sophisticated deception, and I think they just have underestimated the the potential of their of their rivals, if if that's indeed what it is. Um, so I don't fault them, really. I just think that they fell victim to a very sophisticated ruse. Okay. Do you see them coming out of that at some point, or do you think they're just going to say, well, we just can't find a plane and that's it? Unfortunately, I think it's the latter. I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to take someone uh, finding a real smoking gun evidence of what happened to the plane uh, before they change their minds. And, and, you know, and I feel like there already is smoking gun evidence of what happened mm -hmm. to the plane. I, I feel that the, that the inconsistencies in the flap are on um, you know, maybe in retrospect, people will say, oh, yeah, that was clearly uh, wrong. But, uh, you know, it, 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 sometimes it takes more evidence than you think. Right, right. Do you – what does your gut tell you? Do you think that there are people high up in the intelligence services of the United States, the NSA, CIA, whoever else, that 
they actually do know, but they can't release to the public or, or what? Do you think that not only as the, let's say it was the Russians or somebody like that, do you think that they've successfully fooled everybody or there are some people in some certain positions in other countries, maybe the United States, that actually know what happened and just can't go on the record? My, if I had to choose one or the other, I'd say that they probably do know. But that I have no evidence for that. It just seems they it would be too depressing to think that they okay. that if the Russians took it, that the Americans would have completely missed it even after I wrote my book. Okay. okay. Uh, speaking uh, of your book, once again, it's called "The Plane That Wasn't There." You have two other books: "Extreme Fear" and then another book regarding the the German wings uh, right. pilot who committed suicide, killed all those people in 2015. Right. Just tell the listeners a little bit about those two books, Extreme Fear first, if you could. Yeah, the book is called Extreme Fear, The Science of Your Mind in Danger. And uh, it's about what happens to us mentally when we're in um, under extreme stress, we're in a life or death situation, or even when we're in sort of feeling social anxiety or having a panic attack. Um, it all relates to the same psychological system. Um, a lot of aviation examples, people saving their plane uh, with seconds to spare. Uh, and then there, I also uh, came out with a, another book in 2015, a Kindle single called um, Fatal Descent. It's the story of Andreas Lubitz uh, and German Wings 9525, the, 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 the guy who committed suicide by flying his, uh, his Airbus into the, the Alps. And what would be a, a summary of, of, of obviously there's not much of a mystery there unless you listen to his parents who think that he didn't do it, um, which I, yeah. I'm sure that is not the position you're taking. But what would you say the summary of, of that book would be? The summary of the book would basically that Andreas Lubitz suffer, suffered from depression uh, and that he was, um, he, he was suffering these psychosomatic symptoms. Uh, that, that oftentimes depression manifests as a physical illness. And he basically um, decided to take his life because he just didn't, he didn't understand what was happening to him. And he had kind of led this very high-pressured, um, failure is not an option kind of upbringing, and he just didn't really have the psychological tools to deal with it. Um, so it's, you know, uh, a tragedy and actually not unlinked to MH370. He, he was, uh, after his death, uh, his iPad was found to have um, searched, he'd searched for uh, information about MH370, specifically the, the theory that the pilot committed suicide. That, was, that, that remains the sort of most plausible mainstream theory about MH370. Right. Yeah, we didn't even talk about the pilots themselves and everything, but people, of course, can... I'll read about that in your book, uh, The Plane That Wasn't There. In fact, the people should know, I, I've listened to um, Jeff's book twice, and probably in our discussion, we've only covered maybe 50% of what is in yeah. his book. So I would urge you to go out, get the audio book, get the print book, whatever you can. I, it's, a, it's an excellent read. It, it really is. And I haven't read the other two, but I'm going to take for granted uh, they're just as good. Um, maybe I should ask you this. One more thing about pilots and suicide. That happens probably more than people realize. I mean, it's not a common occurrence, but I think of the Egypt air crash, um, the Silk air crash. Of course, those countries dispute those were suicides, but the NTSB, you listen to them, they'll tell you that those were pilot suicides. Yeah, there's a pretty compelling case uh, in, in, in each of those, and 
it's it, it's not a verdict. It's a, it's a verdict that people push back against. As, as you mentioned, Andreas Lubitz's parents also dispute that. Um, but you know, you have a handful of cases. Uh, you know, uh, and it's really um, people can do very strange things. Um, but uh, they also tend to fall within a certain within certain parameters. Like they, like I said, they do tend to have to be quick. Mm-hmm, right. um, you know, it's not something that you would generally like say. Given a choice between flying it into a mountain or flying it into the ground, or like flying out over the open ocean until it runs out of fuel, uh, just doesn't seem a very plausible. Right, right. Very plausible. Where can people find you, Jeff? Uh, you have a Facebook page. I know you have your website. Tell the listeners about all. Yeah, that. Please, please. I've got a Facebook page called the Jeff Wise Scribatorium. Uh, I, 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 most of what I do, though, I do on my own web page, which is jeffwise.net. And I would strongly urge anyone who's at all interested in this um, to come. And 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 there's a kind of an ongoing discussion. I post every like couple of weeks or something. I, I put up what I've been, I, I'm always working on something about this case, um, putting up the latest and letting people pick it over and discuss. And, uh, you know, if people have new theories or new insights, I'm happy to put up as a guest post. And But there's a, there's a sort of a, uh, I've got like 40,000 comments or something over the last three years yeah. where people are kind of weighing in. So it's a real lively, active discussion. And uh, yeah, I mean, it is. You know, it, it helps. I mean, I think every single person that comes and kind of throws in their two cents, you know, it, it makes a makes a difference. Do you have a Facebook page or anything like that? Are you on Twitter? Do you do that? Any of that? I, tw- I tweet under the handle of Man V Brain. Uh, Man vs. Brain, interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's my next project that I'm hoping to get underway about um, why we struggle. It, it's sort of a spinoff of the, um, the fear book. Why do we struggle with ourselves when we're trying to be brave and then kind of opening it up into why do we struggle with all the other things we struggle with, you know, trying to eat right and exercise and save money. And it seems like life can be a struggle. Okay. Why is that? Um, but, uh, so man V brain, but then on, I mentioned my Facebook page is called the Jeff wise scribatorium. I think if you just go, if you just search Jeff wise, mm-hmm. um, on Facebook, you'll, we'll find all of that. Yeah. Okay, great. Any final words, Jeff? Uh, well, listen, I, like I said, I mean, I feel that, um, you know, we all want to solve the mystery, but it's really, it's more about cutting through the fog. Um, and, and I, and I appreciate you having me on to hopefully do that. You're welcome, Jeff. And I appreciate you being on this episode of Unfound. My pleasure. And that was my July, 2017 interview with Jeff Wise, a person I still consider to be the number one expert on flight 370 despite the rest of the aviation industry not taking his theory seriously. I thank him for joining me and all of you on that episode way back in the first year of the podcast. Please check out both of the books Jeff has published regarding Flight 370 on Amazon and elsewhere. And go to his website, jeffwise.net. It's funny... Besides the actual circumstances of Flight 370 coming to mind when I recall this episode from 2017, the other memory that comes rushing back is how poorly this episode was received by all of you. This was a time in Unfound's existence when I paid much more attention to the numbers than I do now. 
I thought covering Flight 370 would bring in a ton of attention and downloads and subscribers and everything else to Unfound. In fact, it was the opposite. The preceding three episodes of Unfound, Pamela Golden, Chip Campbell, and Amanda DeGuio all had way more listens than the Flight 370 episode. I could not believe it. Why did that happen? Well, all of you are more than welcome to write in the discussion group or anywhere else why you think this happened. My insight is that you, the audience, prefers much more personal stories. You want to hear from a mother, a brother, a child of a missing person. You like hearing the names and intricacies of that missing person's life. It's much more emotional, I guess. Whereas, sure, Flight 370 had 239 people on it. But when the disappearance is covered, except for the pilot and co-pilot, all of the other people don't get mentioned. Plus, and I think this is another huge factor, as you heard in the interview, what Jeff is saying is very, very technical. And maybe that doesn't play out well in an audio format. Like I said, if any of you have any insight into why the original Flight 370 episode wasn't popular at the time, now that has changed since then, please let me know. Now, I should tell you this. On YouTube, it was totally the opposite. Before we started the new YouTube channel, Flight 370's video on the old YouTube channel had over 100,000 views, and we lost those views when we went to the new channel. That number dwarfed all other unfound episodes. Why is this? I think it's because Flight 370 continues to be a worldwide phenomenon, and the people who found Unfound's episode on YouTube are not your regular Unfound listeners. They're not subscribers to Unfound on Podomatic or Spotify or iTunes or anywhere else. They are one or two topic true crime people. And, dare I say it, they're probably way more into conspiracy theories than the average Unfound listener. So, looking back now at the summer of 2017... It was weird watching the downloads for the episode not do well, but the YouTube views go through the roof. But I want you to understand something, and this may help you if you still feel like Flight 370's disappearance is a bit over your head due to the science, the satellite, the ping data, etc., etc., etc. Flight 370 at its core is not much different than any other disappearance we've covered on Unfound. What do I mean? How is Flight 370's disappearance any different than Jason Landry's, or Chance Engelbert's, or David Schrader's, or Renee Lamana's, and many other individuals whose disappearances we've covered? In theirs, just like Flight 370's, 
there is a wealth of information concerning their disappearances to believe they should have been found, that searches should have been successful, that with just a little bit of time and luck, their disappearances would be solved. But nope. And Renee's, in particular, is from the 1990s. Still unsolved. Sure, with Flight 370, we're talking about the entire Indian Ocean and the east half of the Asia continent. But theoretically, from a missing person's investigation point of view, that's no different than looking for a missing person in a lake or on a square mile of property. If the missing person isn't found, that doesn't mean he or she isn't in that area. All it means is the person wasn't located this time. Maybe another search should be done again. Well, for Flight 370, that would be a little more difficult given the cost. But the principle still stands. Also, just like in many disappearances we've covered where there is conflicting information, the Marco Island 3, Trevor Nichols, Chelsea Cobo, and maybe even Eric Franks' case where we now know somebody else was using his phone and computer, there is a ton of scientific analysis for Flight 370 that does not seem to go together even though it should. In fact, just within the last six months, Jeff and I were exchanging email messages, and he made a great point, that when different realms of science analyze an occurrence, a building falling, an earthquake, a hurricane, all of that analysis, if done correctly and unbiasedly, should seem to be all going toward a certain point but coming at it from different angles. Flight 370? The more the scientists have gotten involved, the murkier and puzzling the details have become. For example, the parts that washed up on the coast of Africa. The problem? The data says that the jet hit the ocean in a certain spot. Yet, the current that would have taken those parts from that spot to Africa should have drifted them there in a lot less time. Hmm. We can surely relate to this with all the disappearances covered on Unfound. Timelines that don't make any sense. Noah Davis, for example... Some people claiming they saw the missing person after the accepted disappearance date. Susie Lyle, for example. Husbands saying that they just don't know where their wives went. Rosemary Rapp, for example. Really, in my opinion, the biggest and maybe the only difference between Flight 370 and all the other disappearances we've covered on Unfound is, when disappearances are solved after Unfound has featured them, a large majority of them are not all that big of a surprise. Esther Westenbarger could be an exception, Crystal Morrison certainly, but with Flight 370, 
we must prepare ourselves for a resolution that could be way out of left field, simply due to the scope and complexity of this jet's disappearance. Whether it was a pilot or hijackers, the Russians, a terrorist group, a crazy passenger, whoever or whatever, a unique set of circumstances came together that night to create what I believe is truly the most puzzling disappearance in history. Will it be solved? I think it will. But once again, just like most regular disappearances, I think it will take some luck. I'll leave the theorizing up to you. And that's the program. If you found it informative, please go to the app that you use to listen to Unfound and give this podcast a nice review. I thank you for listening. I'm Ed Denzel, and you've been listening to Unfound.